0: I wanted to thank uh, Professor Zalman for, you had a hard, hard, uh, hard journey up here. So we should have sent her the CSP helicopter, it's just in the shop right now. <laughs> but the drive from San Diego could be uh, like coming from a different country. Um, and uh, so thank you for getting up here, and hopefully you didn't get any tickets speeding up after the um, accident down there. You were not in the accident though, right? Okay. Uh, Joellen Wallen-Zolman holds a PhD in Jewish history from Brandeis University. Her dissertation, completed in 2002, is a history of American synagogue gift shops. This topic incorporates two of her areas of specialization, Jewish art and Jewish history. Professionally, Dr. Zollman has worked with with Jewish material culture collections at the Smithsonian Institution, the Skirball Museum, and the American Jewish Historical Society. Locally, she has taught classes on Jewish history, American religion, and religious art and architecture. Um, again, if you go back to your uh, upcoming series on uh, CSP North, you'll see that the closing two programs feature Professor Zolman. Um, one topic is Pacific Jews Constructing Jewish Identity in California. And that is not her, that is a Hasid hanging ten with a surfboard. And then below that is Shalom uh, um, Hunan, American Jews and Chinese Food, which is a program we actually did up here a few years ago, and it was excellent. So if you missed it or you want to see it again, Remember to go up to CSP North, but for now, are you ready? Yes. Okay, we're ready. Thank you all for coming out today. (laughs) Yay, thank you. I know there's some depression in some parts of our community, but please, let's just move on. Get happy. Let's go.
1: Okay, let's start with my sound check. Can you guys all hear me? Yes. Yes. Alright, I'm gonna need to ask you to bear with us um, for station identification here for a second. So I promised Paul Newman will be back in just a moment. <laughs> He's so lovely to look at. <laughs> um, so if we get rid of that. So say yes? No, no, no. no, that's a no. Okay, there <laughs> we go.
0: This is like group, it's like group uh, sourcing. It's crowdsourcing, yes, that's
1: a no. That's
0: closing.
1: There you go.
2: Um,
1: So I think how this is going to work is as follows. I have a clip from the film Exodus that we're going to watch toward the end of my talk. So I'm going to um, present the material in the beginning first. And then when it comes time to set up the film, because I didn't quite have time to adjust the tech because of traffic, um, we'll take a little stretch. You guys can get a glass of water. I'll set it up, then we'll come back, watch the film, and have Q&A, okay? All right, so I am really happy to be here and very happy to be off the freeway um, today to, uh, to explore together with you the power of a book, the power of a book with the people of the book. Um, Now, this phrase, people of the book, is one that I am sure you have heard before. Yes? Who's heard people of the book? You know this phrase, right? The book and the phrase is which book? The Torah, right? The Torah is Judaism's foundation text, and the relationship that Jews formed with this text shaped Jewish community and Jewish identity. And here's what I mean by that. For millennia in the absence of land and power, Jews found a kind of virtual sovereignty in text. We built our identity and our community around Torah. For this reason, Jewish culture has since ancient times valued literacy and study. It has celebrated scholars and unsurprisingly, in light of all this emphasis on text, the Jewish community has produced a lot of readers and writers. In fact, one way to think about the history of Jewish life from the Babylonian exile onward is to visualize a bookshelf, okay? Everyone visualize a bookshelf. Now on this bookshelf are titles by authors who built on this foundation of Torah, who shaped and reshaped Jewish identity and community through text. So starting from ancient times and moving forward, this Jewish bookshelf would include titles like the Hebrew Bible and the Talmud, the mystical Zohar, the famed work of the Jewish historian Josephus. We would find on our Jewish bookshelf the works of medieval philosophers like Rashi and Maimonides as well as books um, from modern scholars like Theodore Herzl or Shalom Aleichem, Isaac Bashevis Singer, Elie Wiesel, Grace Paley, Philip Roth, Cynthia Ozick, Michael Chabon. I would venture to guess many of you have a bookshelf that looks like this in your own home, right? <coughs> so these titles I just mentioned, they are classics of Jewish literature authored by great Jewish scholars, by respected philosophers, by celebrated literary minds. And yet half a century ago, when a single book transformed the American Jewish view of the creation of the state of Israel, the author was none of these people who I just named. The book was Exodus and its author, Leon Uris, was a high school dropout who failed English three times. I'm sure his relatives are better English scholars. (laughs) Leon Uris did not define himself as an intellectual, nor did he win any literary prizes. He was Jewish, but he was not a rabbi, and he was not, by anyone's definition, a Jewish scholar. Uris never studied in yeshiva. He did not have a bar mitzvah. In fact, he did not really practice Judaism as an adult, and yet he wrote a book that also became a movie, Exodus, that defined America's understanding of the Jewish state. Leon Uris's Exodus deserves a place on the people of the book's bookshelf because this best-selling novel and runaway hit movie packaged and popularized the creation of the state of Israel for an American audience. Exodus is highly sympathetic portrayal of Israel's birth and the conscious links that it drew between American values and the new Jewish state fostered American identification with Israel. So what exactly did Uris' Exodus say about Israel and why did it appeal to American Jews? This is the central question that we're going to explore together today. And we're gonna work with that question, and we're gonna work through that question in the following way. First, we're gonna spend some time thinking about American Zionism, because in order to understand how American views on Israel changed after the publication of Exodus in 1959, we need to first appreciate um, what American views on Israel looked like before 1959. So I'm gonna start with a brief, I promise it's pretty brief, outline of American Zionism. And then we're gonna take a look at the Exodus phenomenon, the writing of and the response to the book and the film. And then we're gonna stretch. Then we're gonna take a look at a couple of film clips from Exodus the movie to see how Uris made the story of the founding of the Jewish state appealing to the American public. So that's our plan. Can you advance the first slide for us? All right, please. Any good conversation about Zionism starts of course with Theodore Herzl. And there he is. Theodore Herzl, the author of Modern Zionism, had a hard time selling the idea of a Jewish state to Western Jews. French Jews weren't interested. German Jews, British Jews, American Jews were largely unmoved and in some cases actively opposed Herzl's Zionism. So where did Herzl find a receptive audience for modern Zionism? Do you know? Russia. Russia, the largest Jewish community in the world at the time that Herzl began shopping his plan for the Jewish state around at the turn of the 20th century, provided early and enthusiastic support for Zionism. Now, in order to understand why Herzl succeeded in Russia while largely failing with Western Jews, you need only to think about what Western Jews had that Russian Jews didn't, namely emancipation. Western Jews were citizens of the states that they inhabited and they felt at home there. In fact, the part of the terms that uh, many of these Western Jews had in terms of citizenship, part of the bargain that they made for citizenship was um, based on the idea that Jews were not a nation, but rather that Judaism was a religion And therefore, it was perfectly plausible and logical that one's national identity could differ from his or her religious affiliation. Now, Jews had spent about 200 years by the time Herzl came along at the end of the 19th century repeating this mantra, we are a religion, not a nation. We are a religion, not a nation. That's how they gained citizenship in the Western world. And then Herzl comes along and says, well, actually, we might also be a nation. And you can see, right, how this might be problematic. In fact, many Western Jews were appalled. They already had a national identity that was working out just fine, thank you very much. Consequently, Zionist organizations struggled to gain membership in Western states at first. America for example, supported only a very small Zionist community, mostly um, comprised of recent Russian immigrants by the time of the First World War. Philip Roth, another great American Jewish writer, has a nearly perfect passage about this disconnect between Zionism and American Jews in his 2006 novel, The Plot Against America. And this is Roth writing about his childhood in Newark, New Jersey. He writes, when a stranger who did wear a beard and who never once was seen hatless appeared every few months after dark to ask in broken English for a contribution toward the establishment of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine, I, who wasn't an ignorant child, did not know quite what he was doing on our landing. My parents would give Sandy and me a couple of coins to drop into his collection box. Largesse, I always thought, dispensed out of kindness so as not to hurt the feelings of a poor old man who from one year to the next seemed unable to get it through his head that we'd already had a homeland for three generations. I pledged allegiance to the flag of our homeland every morning at school. I sang of its marvels with my classmates at assembly time. I eagerly observed its national holidays. And without giving a second thought to my affinity for 4th of July fireworks or Thanksgiving Turkey or Decoration Day double headers, our homeland was America. Now with that short passage, Roth articulates what was the central dilemma for American Zionism. If we already had a homeland, why support a Jewish state? So two American Zionist leaders answered that question definitively and persuasively in the period between the wars. Louis Brandeis and Henrietta Sold transformed American Zionism, building the American Zionist movement to unprecedented strength and numbers by explaining to American Jews that Zionism was not about building a Jewish state for themselves, but rather was about creating a home for other less fortunate Jews, Russian Jews, Romanian Jews, Polish Jews, and increasingly German Jews. These Jews desperately needed a haven and a homeland. Brandeis and Zold argued that it was our responsibility as Americans who believed in liberty and justice for all to encourage the creation of a democratic Jewish state that would be a haven for Jews, a permanent place of refuge governed by Jews for Jews. It was our obligation, in fact, as Jewish Americans, members of a lucky, large, and wealthy Jewish community to take care of our other, less fortunate um, Jewish brethren in the world. So as the 20th century progressed, and American immigration policy became increasingly restrictive, more and more American Jews understood the need for a Jewish state that would not impose quotas on Jewish refugees, and the American Zionist movement grew accordingly. The Second World War generally, and the Holocaust more specifically, provided the most horrifying kind of proof that Brandeis and Sold were right There must be a haven for Jews, a permanent place of refuge, a Jewish state. And so in in 1948, American Jews understood the need for a Jewish state and they celebrated the establishment of the state of Israel. American Jews felt a sense of happiness and relief at the creation of Israel. American Jews felt happy and relieved but those weren't the only feelings that the American Jewish community had about Israel. There were other feelings too, confusion and ambivalence and apprehension. And here's where that confusion and ambivalence and apprehension came from. If the goal of American Zionism was to create a Jewish state that would serve as a refuge for persecuted Jews, and that Jewish state had been successfully created, then what? Next, what was the role of American Jewry going forward? Remember, American Jewry had been the largest, the wealthiest and the most powerful Jewish community in the world before the creation of the State of Israel. After 1948, America was still the largest Jewish community and it was still the wealthiest Jewish community But what was the role of American Jewry vis-a-vis world Jewry now that there was a Jewish state? The American Jewish community was confused and apprehensive and ambivalent about its relationship to the new Jewish state. We can see these feelings surface in a remarkable exchange between Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, and the president of the American Jewish Committee, Jacob Blaustein this exchange of views took place over luncheon in Jerusalem in 1950. So who were these men and and what brought them to the table to negotiate over lunch in Jerusalem in 1950? Well, David Ben-Gurion, I'm sure many of you know, was the labor Zionist leader, architect of the state of Israel, and Israel's first prime minister. Ben-Gurion was a lifelong passionate Zionist who held as one of his core beliefs that the central mission of the Jewish state was the ingathering of exiles. Now to this end, Ben-Gurion helped to draft the Law of Return and successfully argued for its adoption in front of the Knesset. Through the passage of the Law of Return, Ben-Gurion explained Israel would commit itself to the Zionist idea of the repatriation of the exiled Jewish people to their ancestral homeland. This is an argument that Ben-Gurion would make again and again, loudly and publicly, and often as a part of a plea for Westerners to make Aliyah. Now you can see how this might have made American Jews uncomfortable, right? In fact, the catalyst for this particular meeting between Blaustein and Ben-Gurion was a speech that Ben-Gurion had made encouraging large scale immigration by American Jewish youth, if necessary against the wishes of their parents. So the American Jewish committee protested vigorously in response to these remarks that Ben-Gurion had directed to American Jewish young people, they sent um, blank, uh, they sent Blaustein rather as their representative to Jerusalem to talk to Ben Gurion about these remarks. So, what was the American Jewish Committee, and why did Ben Gurion care what they thought? Well, the American Jewish Committee was established in 1906 to safeguard the welfare and security of Jews worldwide. Um, Israeli leaders kept a close eye on the American Jewish Committee for a few reasons. First of all, Zionist leaders perceived that the American Jewish Committee was um, the Jewish organization with the best access to U.S. policymakers, And furthermore, the American Jewish Committee was, in their judgment, the organization most representative of wealthy American Jews. Blaustein was certainly one of those wealthy American Jews. He ran his father's business a little known outfit called the American Oil Company. So as president of the American Jewish Committee, Blaustein represented the committee's concern regarding Ben-Gurion's remarks, encouraging young American Jews to make Aliyah. So these two men sat down to iron out a more productive, less contentious working relationship between US Jewry and Israel going forward. This historic exchange resulted in what became known as the Blaustein-Ben-Gurian Agreement, the basic tenets of which you see on the next slide. I wanna take a minute to look at them together as they give us some sense of the early stumbling blocks in the relationship between US Jewry and Israel. So let's take a look. These are two tenets, but this is not the agreement in its entirety. And they read the government and the people of Israel respect the integrity of Jewish life in the democratic countries and the right of Jewish communities to develop their indigenous social, economic, and cultural aspirations in accordance with their own needs and institutions and Israel fully accepts the fact that the Jews in the United States do not live in exile and that America is home for them. So what are the issues that you see here? what are they trying to what are the themes here in these tenets that they 're trying to um, to straighten out. Yeah, I heard someone say it. This is an issue of loyalty, first of all. Where does the loyalty of Jews lie, right? Are Jews gonna be loyal above all to Israel, above all to the United States? If they're American Jews, how do you figure out how to be loyal to both? Um, there are issues here of exile versus homeland. What does it mean to be in exile? What does it mean to call a certain nation home? And then finally, this is about the balance of power, right? Who is in charge? Who's in charge of Jewish cultural production? Who is in charge of Jewish scholarship, and Jewish religion, Jewish communal organization? These are, by the way, n- by no means questions that were resolved by the Palestine-Ben bankerian agreement, but you can see that these were issues that have been present since the creation of the State of Israel, some of which we have an easier time with now and some of which are still difficult um, and, and always constantly being renegotiated. So the blaustein ben gurion meeting and agreement show us that the relationship between America and, and Israel was complicated in its early years. To put it in Facebook, stat- <laughs> Facebook uh, language, right? Relationship status, complicated. Um, to be clear, American Jewry supported the Jewish state. Israel played a big role in American Jewish philanthropy most American Jews described themselves as pro-Israel and 90% of American Jewry in one survey told researchers that they would feel a sense of loss if Israel was destroyed. Still, American Jews struggled to know how to incorporate Israel into their lives. Surveys of the American Jewish community in the 1950s show us that few American Jews traveled to Israel and a shockingly small number of American Jewish religious school teachers had incorporated Israel as a subject of study in their classrooms. American Jewish publishers weren't producing books about the new Jewish state in the 1950s. Israel lacked a compelling narrative among American Jews. They didn't know how to talk about it or how to integrate it into their own lives and experiences. And that began to change literally with the publication of Leon Uris' novel Exodus. Exodus presented the genesis of the state of Israel in a way that was creative and compelling and completely in tune with American values. In order to measure and understand the impact that this book and movie had, We're gonna unpack it in two phases. First, we're gonna look at its popularity and then we're gonna look at its content. Exodus was wildly popular. How many of you have read the book? Okay, that's near universal, seen the movie. Okay, you're in good company. (laughs) Soon after its publication in 1958, Exodus topped the US bestseller list for close to five months. And in September of 1959, advanced paperback orders of 1.5 million copies had no precedent in publishing history. Upon the release of the film in 1960, it was widely reported in the American Jewish press that it was nearly as common to find a copy of Exodus in American Jewish households as it was to find the Bible. And of the two, not a few Jewish households were missing the Bible. (laughs) David Tversky, a prominent journalist, who wrote Yuris's obituary in the forward in, in 2003, had this to say about seeing Exodus, the movie in the theaters in 1960. His memories echo um, the reaction of other reviewers and help us to understand Exodus's appeal and its impact. Tversky wrote, I was 10 years old when the film version of Exodus, Leon Yuris's epic telling of the struggle for the establishment of the state of Israel opened in Times Square. Going to see it was an event of considerable moment. Even as a 10 year old heading downtown by subway with a neighborhood friend and his mother, I understood that what I was going to see was more than just a movie. Exodus was a remaking of my family's, my community's primal myth. We American Jews were still living in the immediate shadow of the Holocaust, trying to find a foothold in America. In my own Yiddish-speaking socialist corner of the Bronx, the very idea of a heroic Jewish epic going up in lights in Times Square, a Hollywood retelling of the labor Zionist chapter in Jewish history, no less, was electrifying. And not just in my neighborhood. The legend of Exodus would inform decades of American admiration for Israel's daring do, its greening of the desert and social experimentation, its success in summoning a vibrant state out of the ashes of the crematoria. Before Exodus, our cultural role models were brainy types like Louis Brandeis and Albert Einstein, clowns like Milton Beryl, and pampered Arabists like the fictional Marjorie Morningstar. Eurus invited us to stand and identify with the warrior heroes who had created Israel. He taught us to stand tall. We'll give David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first um, prime minister, the last word in in reviews today. When asked about Exodus, Ben-Gurion famously said, as a piece of literature, it isn't much, but as a piece of propaganda, it's the greatest thing ever written about Israel. (laughs) So what was it about Exodus that captured the hearts and the minds of the American people and also so pleased Israel's first prime minister? With Exodus, Leon Uris told a story about Jewish strength. He told a story about Jewish strength. He gave American Jews a narrative of Israel's birth that not only portrayed Jews as tough, self-reliant, freedom-fighting pioneers, but also made sense of the Holocaust. His story of revitalization and empowerment in the Holy Land helped to restore Jewish self-confidence and pride after the devastation of the Holocaust. In order to understand how exactly Uris accomplished these things, I'm gonna share with you a little bit of his biography and then a few scenes from the book and the movie. So Uris was born in Baltimore in 1924 to parents uh, who divorced when he was quite young. Of his childhood, Yuris once said that he thought of himself as, quote, a very sad little Jewish boy isolated in a southern town, undersized and asthmatic. Disappointed with his lot in life, Yuris saw an opportunity to change when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941. He dropped out of high school to enlist in the Marines, Three years of combat in the South Pacific would provide the basis of his first novel called Battlecry. Battlecry was published in 1954. It was an unabashedly patriotic tale and it was a big commercial success. Warner Brothers bought the rights to the, to the book and Eurus penned the screenplay for Battlecry. After that, he settled in Hollywood where he wrote a few more screenplays, um, most notably the 1957 hit Western gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Meanwhile, he wrote a second book called The Angry Hills that was published in 1955. This book was based loosely on the diary of his uncle who had served in World War II as part of the British Army's Palestine Brigade. This experience put Uh, Israel on Uris' radar, the experience of understanding his uncle's story. Uris recognized in his correspondence with his uncle that the birth of Israel contained elements of an excellent story that had yet to be told, a military battle of right versus wrong that moved the Jewish people from tragedy to triumph. So Uris traveled to Israel, to Denmark, to Italy, and to Cyprus to research the project and read by his own account more than 300 books on the history of the Jewish people. His research and travels only added to his conviction that Americans, both Jews and non-Jews, did not yet correctly grasp the historical and moral impact of the creation of the Jewish state. Yuris wrote, quote, "'Israel is the greatest miracle of our times, an event unparalleled in the history of mankind, the rebirth of a nation which had been dispersed for 2,000 years before. It's the story of the Jews coming back after centuries of abuse, indignities, torture, and murder to carve as oasis in the sand with, to carve and an oasis in the sand with guts and with blood. It's a story about fighting people, people who do not apologize either for being born Jews or the right to live in human dignity. So Uris set out to write Israel's creation story. The resulting work Exodus is unquestionably the work of an American Jew whose worldview was shaped by the, his experience of Jewishness, his understanding of war, his patriotism, and his appreciation of American history in the American Western. We can see these elements of Uris's biography in various scenes in the book and the movie demonstrating that Exodus is as much an American tale as it is the story of the Jewish state. So let's take a look at the text and see how Yores told such a compelling American and Jewish story. Exodus as many of you know is the action-packed story of Ari Ben-Kanan, a heroic Haganah commander who outwits the British to, um, to bring illegal Jewish immigrants to post-war Palestine. Ari has a lost love, Daphna, after whom he names a children's kibbutz, gone Daphna, and a new love who's called Kitty, an American Christian nurse whose heart he wins with his bravery and his determination. At the same time, Uris introduces the history of the Holocaust through another character in, his, in the book called Dov Landau, who survives the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and Auschwitz to become an Israeli freedom fighter. In the film, the protagonist, Ari Ben-Kanin, is played by the quintessential actor, Jewish actor? Paul Newman. Let's bring him up there. There he is. <laughs> Uh, With his light hair and eyes, Newman was actually a very surprising choice for the role, but also a deliberate and an impactful choice. Uris created the character of Ari Ben-Kanin to represent what he called the new Jew, a strong, handsome man of action. Uris wrote quote, I believe it will be like a breath of spring air for the American people to meet Mr. Ari ben Kanen, the fighting Jew who wouldn't take shit from nobody. <laughs> the film's director, Otto Preminger, thought of Newman to play ben Kanan right away because Preminger explained, quote, I wanted a Jewish actor who didn't look Jewish. Preminger understood Eurus' hero was a kind of new Jew, a powerful surprise. Newman could pull that off. American Jewish writer Misha Benson agreed that Newman was the right choice for the role. Quote, here was a strong dashing Jewish hero, a modern technicolor Moses, defying authority with cool aplomb to save his people. Now, Ben Canaan's love interest, Kitty uh, Friedmont, was played by Hollywood beauty Eva Marie Saint, and you can see her up there on the top slide with Newman and Otto Preminger, the director of the film. With Kitty, with that character, Uris aimed to make the case for Israel to non-Jews. She is the voice of Christian America, asking questions about politics and Zionism and Jewish history. Kitty's questions provide Uris with an opportunity to explain his opinion on all of these subjects in the form of long, detailed answers. The novel, as some of you might remember, runs six hundred and twenty six pages, and the movie ran three and a half hours. The explaining that Urus does, his portrayal of politics and of Zionism and of Jewish history is mostly true. Let's <laughs> advance the slide. Take for example, Eurus's portrayal of the Exodus ship, Exodus is based on a true story. Obviously the founding of the state of Israel is a true story. What I mean is that the book and the movie open with the plight of a ship called the Exodus that was full of Jewish refugees who wanted to go to Palestine but were being denied entry by the British. There really was such a refugee ship called the Exodus But Eurus fudges the details a little bit, particularly the geography and the timeline for the purpose of the story that he wants to tell. Eurus is interested in highlighting aspects of the founding of the state that portray Jews as a strong people who take action to control their destiny, determined to move from tragedy, the Holocaust, to triumph, the Jewish state. So he tells the ship's story in a way that emphasizes these qualities. In history and the book and the film, the ship carries refugees from the Holocaust, survivors of genocide, determined to settle in Palestine and build a Jewish state there. In history and the book and the film, the British refuse to allow the refugees to enter Palestine. History, the book and the film also express outrage that Holocaust survivors are turned away and sent back to Europe. All of the rest to Eurus is commentary, details that can be arranged and reimagined so as to have a better story. For Eurus, it's important to convey the connection between the Holocaust and the Jewish state. He uses this boat to literally move the Jewish people from darkness and despair, Europe and the Holocaust to light and hope in Israel. Out of the ashes of the Holocaust comes the nation of Israel. This idea entered into the American consciousness in large measure through this novel and then the film. Euras solidified the link between the Holocaust and Israeli statehood in a narrative where the Jewish tragedy in Europe became part of the past history and personal identity of all of the fighters on the boat who are struggling to establish the Jewish state. And you can see this link clearly expressed on the Exodus movie poster. Okay, Okay, there you go, you see it? Can you see those hands rising up out of the fire? And what are they holding, can you tell? They've got a gun, right? The fire is the Holocaust. The fire is the crematoria, right? The guns are, the, are Jewish strength that will move Jews from tragedy to, to triumph. This Holocaust-Israel narrative, it's an accepted part of our culture now, and it was Uris who popularized it. There's actually another important idea conveyed here in this poster, and we can also see it um, in the book cover art. So this slide shows you the novel, uh, the original edition, um, and then also the movie poster beside us. Now, if you look at these two um, side by side, you'll see that Jews are not pictured here as scholars, they are not huddled around the Torah studying, they are not half bent davening in synagogue, prayer books in hand, What are Jews doing here? They are holding guns. They are fighting, right? They are seizing power and they are taking action. Uris admired the toughness that he saw in Israelis, and he believed in the power of their guns. He wrote this about Israel to his father, quote, it is a nation of young Marines, Sabras, the Hebrew warrior of the Maccabees and Bar Kokhba. This is Israel, the fighter who spits in the eye of the Arab hordes and dares him. This young Israel shrugs its shoulders at the Talmudic foolishness of the old folks. If you think that this spirit was gained here by the old scholars, you are wrong. Israel was won by the gun and it will be saved by the gun. So that might actually read as a little disturbing to some of us, I think, but still it shows how Yeres valued the Jewish show of strength and power In Israel and you can see this image continues to be associated with with the film and the birth of Israel if you advance the slide Um, this is the sheet music for the wildly popular Exodus song I'm sure many of you heard it at bar mitzvahs and weddings um, over the years it's actually the only piece of the film that won an Academy Award the score won an Academy Award Um, and then Pat Boone wrote lyrics for the song um, and it became very very popular and you see again the same inner imagery, right? You've got the ship, you've got the hand, you've got the gun, and then can you advance to the slide one more time? I was, I was looking at my Facebook feed actually recently, and this popped up on the side, and I was so startled because these hands reminded me of the hands from the um, from Exodus, from the film and the novel, and um, I just wanted to put it up there as an example of you know whether intentionally or not how this idea, this theme can, in some ways, we can think about whether it carries through um, the visuals that we have about the state of Israel. So advance the slide one more time, please. Okay, so um, I think we can see from all of this imagery that Leon Uris' Exodus portrayed Jews as tough. They were determined and smart and dreaming of self-government, and who was standing in their way in Exodus? The British, does that sound familiar? Can you think of another origin story that has a very similar cast of characters? Um, Yes, America. Uris drew deliberate parallels between the American Revolution and the Exodus story. The first time we see Paul Newman as Ari ben Kanan, he swims ashore to Cyprus after receiving flashlight beam signals from a Haganah man camouflaged as a local taxi driver. This is a Mediterranean version of the Paul Revere story. Now, in case you missed this reference, it's made perfectly clear in dialogue a few minutes later when Kitty expresses disbelief at ben Kanan's plan to lead 600 people on his ship in defiance of the British. Quote, you can't fight the whole British army with 600 people, she exclaims, and Ben Canaan responds with an American analogy. Quote, how many Minutemen did the Americans have at Concord the day this shot was fired that was heard around the world? Euris made the story of the founding of the State of Israel relatable for Americans by portraying it in familiar American terms. Okay, now that you have a sense of the themes that Eurus emphasized strength, right? The meaning of the Holocaust, the importance of action, the parallels between American and Israeli history, and you've heard about the vehicles that he used to advance those themes, the, the characters of Ari and Kitty, as well as the Exodus ship now we're going to watch two clips and see if you can spot all of this being played out on screen i want to give you just a second let me just tell you what um you're going to see we're going to watch a, one clip first of all that's about 10 minutes so settle in um then we're going to talk about that and then we're going to watch a very short two to three minute clip after that so as soon as you're are you good are you to run it Do you want me to come back there you're good okay we're going to go
3: Attention Olympia. Attention out there. This is Major Corvo speaking. Attention Olympia. You have no chance to escape. The destroyer Zebra is moving into position to block the harbor entrance. Return to dock. Otherwise, we will board you. Have you heard me, Olympia? You compound bound for Palestine with an American captain and crew and a passenger manifest of 611 persons. We are carrying 200 pounds of dynamite in the engine room with fuses attached. We've one British soldier step aboard this ship and we'll blow her up. Have you heard me, Major? Message received. Where would they find 200 pounds of dynamite? Give me General Sutherland. Connect me to General Sutherland. <laughs> in an ammunition dump, you blithering
4: idiot.
3: A corporal here, sir. The Olympia threatens to blow herself out of the water, sir,
4: if we board her. I'm convinced it's a bluff, of course.
3: Boarding party en route,
4: sir. Call your boarding party back. Signal the Olympia, I'm asking London for instructions. If she stays where she is, no one will molest her. They've threatened to dynamite the Olympia if we board her.
2: Do you think they mean it?
4: Nearly two years ago, a Haganah ship, which we were detaining in the port of Haifa, did blow herself up. 236 refugees died.
2: General, I simply must get Karen off the ship.
4: Would you care to go on board the Olympia <coughs> and learn from the child exactly what happened?
1: Will oh, they let me?
4: I'll try and arrange it. If I succeed, you can do me a favor in return.
3: I'll do anything
4: you want. Now, if force or coercion of any kind was used to get that child on board the ship, you must promise me to tell the entire story at a press conference, which I shall arrange. Do you agree? I'll be glad to. Ruben,
3: send this every 10 minutes and keep on sir. Could we interrupt, please? Yes. Uh, this is Dr. Devries. We elevated ourselves into a medical committee. Good. Uh, it's our opinion the sanitary arrangements on this ship are hopelessly inadequate unless we make some additional bathing and toilet facilities. We'll have a serious health problem. Right, Doctor. We'll try to take care of it. There he is. This is Mrs. Fremont from General Sutherland. How are you doing? Hank? Hey? Yeah? We have enough scrap lumber to build privies on deck. I okay. guess so. Ten holders. Pack some showers together, too. OK. Anything else? Not for the peasant. Thank you. This one's a hype. You wanted to see me?
2: Yes, Captain.
3: Yes, Captain. His Majesty's Jewish brigade. North Africa, Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. The decorations are real. Is that what Sutherland sent you to find out? You
2: lied to me about the girl. She's not at the camp. She's on this ship. And you forced her to come aboard.
3: We don't force anybody. Tell Aviv yet? No. Go on. You're not even listening. I heard every word you said. I lied to you about the girl. What else? I'm going to take her off this death trap. Don't you tell me what you'll do aboard this ship. You'll do exactly what I tell you you can do. Tel Aviv, beginning of the sand. Fine. Assuming we've got the girl, how do you know she wants to get off? I am trying to save a Jewish child. Can't you understand that? Don't you have any respect for human life? Now, don't expect me to get hysterical over the life of one Jewish child, and don't you get hysterical either. You're late, lady. You're ten years late. Almost two million Jewish children were butchered like animals, because nobody wanted them. No country would have them. Not your country or any other country. And nobody wants the ones who survived. Jewish flesh is cheap, lady. It is cheaper than beef. It is cheaper even than herring. You and your respect for it. Call beef complete now. You find the girl. if She wants to go with you. Take her. Take a dozen if you want to.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Kitty! Kitty!
3: It happened so fast I couldn't even leave your note. I had to go, Kitty, to find my father. When you asked me to go to America, I didn't know. I mean, oh, Kitty, we're going to Palestine. Yeah, you don't know what it's like in Palestine. And the British won't let you go anyhow. They'll have to, Kitty. They'll just have to. Because we're not going back to Carolus. Not ever. Then let me
2: take you to Palestine. I can find a way. The man in charge here, Mr. Bing Kanan? Yes. If you want to come with me, you have his permission. I couldn't leave you now, Kitty. I don't know how to explain it to someone like
3: you. But we all came here together. And now we're trying to do something.
2: And I must stay here, Kitty.
3: General Sullivan calling the Olympia.
4: This is the Exodus. Come in, General. I have received instructions from the Colonial Office in London. No attempt will be made to board the Olympia, but the harbour will remain blocked. You may return to Carriolas whenever you wish. If you choose to remain in the ship, Provisions and medical supplies will be sent to you as you need them. Message complete.
2: Not even now, Kitty. I couldn't.
3: It's it's like leaving your family when things are bad. I
2: know.
3: If you want anything, will you let me know? Yes. General Sutherland's your friend. Tell him to let us go to Palestine. They're just going to turn this ship into another concentration camp. You're wrong, Leon Lakovich. We cannot stay here. We shall have to go back sooner or later. Stay here, go back! Nonsense! Did we escape for just ourselves alone? No! We've done it for hundreds of thousands of Jews all over Europe who couldn't get out. Also, it makes news. World news! I your attention for a minute. Now, you all heard General Sutherland and the loudspeaker. You must now make a decision. You can go back to Karaolos. The only way to go back to Karaolos is by crawling. Or you can stay aboard this ship. Who are you making the propaganda for? Them or us? There is another possibility. You were picked by Haganah for this ship, so that your escape to Palestine would have some meaning to the world. Now, if you still wanted to have some meaning, if you want to try to finish what we began, you can go on a hunger strike. Now you're beginning to make a little sense. We shall tell to the British, we spit on your food. Yeah! And the little food we've got here, we shall draw all yeah! strike is a very serious business, because once you strike, it can only end when you have won or when you are dead. What is so unusual about the Jews dying? Is there anything new? I say right here, there is no excuse for us to on in, unless we start fighting right now, so that every Jew on the face of the earth can begin to start feeling like a human being again. You heard what I said? Fight! Not bad! Fight! Fight! Everybody aboard this ship agreed to accept Haganah discipline. I am now giving an order. We will sit down and we will maintain silence for 20 minutes. Each one of us will listen to his own heart and to his brain, too. And then we will vote. We will now maintain silence.
1: Okay. So I just want to stop there for a second to make sure. Yep, Here's the mic so you can all hear. all saw the themes that we've been talking about, right? You saw the display of Jewish strength. We're not going to beg, we're gonna fight, right? You saw Jews saying we are gonna fight for a Jewish state. You saw the very explicit connection being made between the Holocaust and the state of Israel, right? So we came from, um, you see it in the beginning with, with Paul Newman explaining to Eva Marie Saint Um, that Jewish flesh is cheap, that all of these Jews have just died in the Holocaust. You see it in the exchange between Newman and the people on the ship about what they want to do going forward. You see that connection being made. So you've got strength. You've got the connection between the Holocaust and um, the State of Israel. And you also start to see the role here that Eva Marie Saint plays in the movie and how the movie acts as a way to explain Zionism also to non-Jews, right? You're gonna see a little bit more of that in in the next clip. Um, So watch for that. You'll see Uris' opinions and and the screenwriter's opinions and an explanation of of Zionism for non-Jews there. And you also see that really kind of interesting exchange between the young Jewish refugee called Karen and Eva Marie Saint, where she's trying to say to Eva Marie Saint, what you can do as a Christian is help us establish the state of Israel, right? so you saw all the themes and the kind of ideas that we've talked about so far. The last clip is just um, much shorter and you're going to see again Kitty Fremont, Eva Marie Saint. Um, you're gonna see her talking to, um, to General Sutherland and she's gonna be a real student of Zionism here. She's gonna be the vehicle to express the opinions and to, of yours and to teach the reader about politics and about history. Um, the, the version of history that's presented here, it's pretty damning to the British. They definitely are going to look like the bad guys. And Justin in place, that isn't clear to American audiences, the message is reinforced um, with the very last image you'll see in this clip. So I want you to pay careful attention to the last image you see and tell me what it reminds you of, okay? This is a short one.
2: I saw the people on that ship. They're not dangerous. They're just poor, miserable people. Why can't you let them know?
4: You must understand that we, British, have shown throughout our history an extraordinary talent for troublesome commitments. Palestine's a British mandate imposed upon us by the League of Nations, which makes us responsible for keeping peace in the area. The Arabs simply won't keep the peace if we allow further Jewish immigration.
2: I don't know much about the mandate, but I do know that Jews were promised a homeland in Palestine.
4: During the First World War, Britain needed and accepted Jewish support from all over the world. But in return, the Balfour Declaration of 1917 made such a promise. Well, that promise was reconfirmed during World War II. This chap then came and probably wasn't lying when he said he fought with us. Thousands of Palestinians did.
2: How can you promise something and then not deliver it? England was fighting for our life in
4: 1917. Nations are better like people in such circumstances. They made promises they're not immediately able to fulfill. During that same crisis, we made the Arabs certain assurances. Hence, they have their claims, too. The Arabs are fanatics on the subject of Jewish immigration. Just now, we need their goodwill.
2: How is it ever going to end? I don't know.
4: No question now is before the United Nations. I hope they solve it. The sooner I stop operating detention camps, the happier I'll be. That goes for every British officer, and so do I know. Telegram, sir. Thank you. Yes? that devil. Of course. Send the boat alongside at once. I'll join you in ten minutes. They want to send 23 people back to Cariolos. The rest have declared a hunger strike. Can I drop you at your hotel? Of course.
1: rowing of, of British supplies the side of, of the ship reminds you of what famous incident in American history? The Boston Tea Party, right? So in this clip you see how Uris used this imagery and then after him Preminger with the movie to appeal to American audiences. These are themes, these are ideas, these are images that American Jews and non-Jews could definitely relate to and I think that we can all agree that that final image is a very stirring one, throwing the British supplies over the side of the ship, watching the Israeli flag being lifted um, off on the ship, and um, listening to Hatikva in the background. There's so much more to say about Exodus, but I don't want to go on as long as Leon Uris or Otto (laughs) Preminger on the subject, so I'll offer just a few concluding words. Leon Uris' Exodus changed the image and conversation about Israel in the United States. He gave us a narrative of the founding of the Jewish state that fit neatly into the American sensibility. This narrative twinned the creation of America and the creation of Israel. It stressed pioneer strength and rugged individualism and guns. In this way, Exodus is a sort of Middle Eastern Western. Finally, Exodus historicized the Holocaust, placing it in the context of World War II and Jewish history in a way that helped Americans to make sense of this monumental tragedy. In all of these ways, Leon Uris' Exodus made Israel not only relatable to American Jews, but also a source of pride. More than any other writer, Uris helped Israel to win the crucial friendship of the United States, in the process, he expanded the boundaries of what a novel might be expected to accomplish. So at this point, I would like to hear from from you all. What are your Exodus memories? Do you remember reading it? Do you remember seeing it in the theater? How did Leon Uris' story of the founding of, of Israel <coughs> impact you? And of course, I'm happy to take questions. Okay, let me actually, can I get some light too? Right behind you. Oh, oh, that's good. And I can see you, and you can see me. Yes, in the back, the purple. Yeah, I, My
3: question is this. In the short run, I can see that it was great propaganda, as, as Ben Gurion said. But one of the points that the Arabs are constantly making now is that the Arab population, in some sense, and don't shoot the messenger here. Just <laughs> <laughs> the Arab population is being victimized by the West because uh, of basically putting the Jews in the middle of Arab territory to atone for the Holocaust. So that this linkage of the Holocaust and um, and uh, uh, the founding of Israel that Uris did isn't, in the long run, Hasn't it worked to Israel's disadvantage in giving the Arabs a propaganda point?
1: Uh, it's an interesting view. Of course, the history—you know—time has moved forward. Our understanding of the past has changed. This is particularly true after the writing of what we would call the new historians in Israel, when Israel began to reassess its own founding, and that starts to happen in the 1980s um, when Israeli historians start to say, "Okay, we, we tell." the narrative of our birth a certain way, but, but we're leaving out some details that might be crucial to understanding it. Um, every country needs a story of its own birth, its own narrative, right? What yours did for us is help us to understand Israel's birth in a way that was very palatable for American Jews. That doesn't mean that that story stands for all time and can't be revised or changed, right? It worked um, in the ni- late 1950s and early 1960s as a narrative, but our understanding of the narrative of the founding of the state has certainly, certainly changed. Um, whether the link between the Holocaust and the creation of the State of Israel has ultimately caused problems, it's very hard to say, in a whole host of problems that plague Israel, whether that one is a particular sticking point, um, one cannot argue that it was certainly a catalyst for the creation of the state. That is a point of historical fact. Yours just popularizes um, it and tells that story in a, in a certain way. But it's an interesting point for discussion. Yeah?
2: I have two questions. Um, did the movie play in Western Europe and how was it received there, if it did? And second of all, the book was published. Ten years after the establishment of the State of Israel, was there not, I mean, I don't know, this is truly a question, was there not tremendous pride among American Jews already? I mean, did did he really enhance that, or was that already there?
1: Well, there was absolute relief and happiness at the establishment of the state among American Jews in 1948, but there were also, as I said, these confusions of sort of, what do we do next? We've got this Jewish state. How do we incorporate it into our Jewish worldview? What does it mean for us as American Jews? So yes, Jews were happy about the establishment of the state. Jews were thrilled to contribute to it. The philanthropy, the American Jewish philanthropy supporting the Jewish state was there in the 50s. But what American Jews were struggling with were really two things. One, how do we understand our role as American Jews now that there is this Jewish state out there? What's our relationship with it? And then also, how do we incorporate the existence of this Jewish state into our lives as American Jews? If we're not going to move there, if we're not going to make Aliyah, then what role does Israel play in our lives? That that took like a decade to to work out and sort of figure out a little bit how how we as American Jews were really going to interact with and portray and imagine and, and understand a new Jewish state. Oh, and in Western Europe. Yes, the movie did show in Western Europe. It did not have quite the amount of, it took a while to get there, right? As movies did in those days, it didn't have at all the same kind of popularity as it did here.
2: Uh, The establishment of the State of Israel helped to lessen anti-Semitism
1: in the United States. The State Department at that time was very (laughs) anti-Semitic. and it um, definitely uh, did a lot to reduce anti-Semitism in the United States. Well, if you look at the post-war period, there are a lot of factors that play into the reduction of anti-Semitism, right? Anti-Semitism probably was at its height in the 1920s and 30s in the United States. That's where we see um, you know, the largest amount of what we'd call social anti-Semitism, restriction of Jews in this country. Um, whether the state of Israel alone can be, I think it would be a mistake to credit the state of Israel alone with erasing that anti-Semitism. You have a whole host of economic and social and political factors that contribute to the changing status of Jews in the United States. There's an excellent article by Jonathan Sarna in today's forward. I don't know if you read the foreword online, about exactly this topic. What was American Jewish life like in the 1920s and 30s? How was it similar or different from what we, um, what we are experiencing right now, and also, was the post-war period a time of, um, why and how was the post-war period a time of um, lessening of anti-Semitism for American Jews? So I recommend Dr. Sarno's article, it's really good stuff. Let's do one or two more questions. Just we're okay, yeah.
2: Um, I first got a hold of the book Exodus in 1976. By then, um, I was a refusenik in Moscow for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the descendant of um, the Russian Zionists that you were talking about. My father was an avid uh, Zionist from Latvia and the youngest of eight children, all of whom made a way out to Palestine in the 30s. And he was just old enough to make his aliyah when the war broke out. And uh, his departure originally was thought to be delayed and later made impossible by the you know, establishment of the Soviet um, regime. So I was... mean, can you speak a little bit? Oh, like I said, by then I was uh, trying to Get to Israel for three years, and we were among the unfortunate one percent of uh, the Soviet Jews who were refused. Hence the term "refusenik." And uh, the book *Exodus* was, of course, forbidden in the Soviet Union, and there was absolutely no way to get a hold of it unless it was smuggled into the country. And it was I, because I lived in in Moscow, uh, we were among the lucky ones who actually got a hold of one book for about uh, 10,000 of us, (laughs) and uh, I I will probably, just like I will never forget the day of um, uh, 9-11, I will never forget the day we got the book of Exodus. The three of us were given one night to read it, or one day, 24 hours. So, uh, because there was a huge line to read it. I mean, people were waiting. And uh, we, of course, we uh, spent every waking moment of that period of time, uh, or even sleeping moment, uh, reading the book. And I have to say, it had a really major impact on the entire Refusenik movement, of which I happened to be one of the leaders in Moscow, Uh, it provided the um, hope that a lot of us were losing. Um, Some people were refused by about 10, 15 years by then. They were losing their qualifications, their careers, their whole lives, including mine, were on hold pretty much. in my early 20s, and uh, you never knew when you'll actually get out. Uh, so in my case, it took five years. I know some people who waited 13, 15 years. And the book really uh, provided the necessary infusion of enthusiasm, because some people were losing hope. Yeah. And so it was really, really a major, major inspiration uh, for
1: for some desperate people like like Soviet refugees. Thank you so much for sharing. That. I'm so glad you did. Let me just say one thing about Exodus in the in the Soviet Union because you mentioned we mentioned Western Europe, but it is it, it did play an amazing role as we just heard, and there's an outstanding documentary called Refusenik, yeah. which Exactly, which has a place in it for Exodus and talks about exactly what you just related, the secret passing around of Exodus from one person to another, handwritten copies of it. Was your copy handwritten? Yes. Yes. Now, can you imagine? I told you it was more than 600 pages, someone handwriting out the book, Mm -hmm. passing it around. We were were passing it around
2: separate pages? Yes. It's It's a
1: remarkable, amazing story. It really is. So thank you so much for sharing it, and thank you all for coming
0: out today.